Thanks for being here so early. I myself couldn't get up this morning almost. I mean, it was hard for me to actually get up and make it here. But thanks a lot for being here. Uh, I'm leading off again today as a couple of days ago. Glad to be here. And I want to uh, present today the basically it's going to be initial evaluation mostly. Management, it's probably a little bit too complex with some of the things that we're going to be discussing. But I'll try to touch a little bit on that. But it's going to be mostly the initial evaluation of some of these common neuromusculoskeletal complaints. As you can see there, those are the objectives. Now, the one thing that I want to really emphasize is, um, actually, that I want to de-emphasize is the use of imaging studies. And you'll see why I am going to talk about that at length today. Because I, I believe that they're very useful, but they can be uh, excessively utilized at times and can introduce a lot of problems, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> As those are my disclosures. I'm the speaker viewer for those companies, but I will not mention the products uh, at all during this lecture. So now this, this, is, this is really, 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 really uh, big, and I want you to keep this in the, in, in the front, instead of the back of your head, in the front of your head while, while I'm doing all this uh, presentation. This is a compilation of relatively recent, actually quite recent studies that have actually looked at imaging abnormalities in completely asymptomatic individuals, okay? This is pretty astounding. If you look at the, in the neck area, you have this bulging of up to 87% of these individuals that have zero, absolutely no neck pain. And we're talking about individuals that age from 20 to 70 years old, 20 years old, okay? Think about that. This degeneration in the lumbar spine from 37 to 96%. In this study, they also looked at these bulges, these protrusions, and they had actually pretty high percentages as well. What I'm trying to say here, I mean, you look at the others, you know, in the neck, I mean, I'm sorry, in the, in the shoulder, you see like such an incredibly high uh, rate of abnormalities up to 96% of the folks that have no symptoms at all whatsoever. So, when somebody actually brings you an imaging study or you actually order an imaging study and you see an abnormality and you say, aha, uh -huh, that's a problem. It may not be. It may have been there for a while, particularly when we're talking about degenerative problems. And pay attention to the fact that some of these individuals were very young. Okay? So we're not looking, of course, when you're looking in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, virtually everybody has abnormalities, but even if they're young, they have problems. So what I want to emphasize is that we had to sort of kind of back, go, go back to school again. We had to actually think about what we learned either in, you know, in nursing school, in medical school, PA, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can really do a good assessment and try to figure out what this patient has because, as it was discussed in one of the lectures yesterday, without a good assessment, you got nothing. You need to really try to figure out what's going on before you can even begin to try to treat it. So we need to look always at the chief complaint, and it's very important if it's acute or chronic. That actually makes a big difference of how we're going to manage the condition. Uh, we need to look at trauma, and trauma, as I will continue explaining with some of the other slides, is quite relative. The trauma for somebody who is a healthy 20-year-old is very, very different than what would be considered trauma for an osteoporotic 85-year-old person. So that could be something that it's, in that older individual, something very trivial could be considered very significant trauma and could lead to a lot of you know, uh, problems such as fractures, et cetera. Past medical history is always important to elicit because 
the past medical history will give us some of the conditions that may potentially lead to developing others, uh, potentially are linked to others that we may be looking for, such as, you know, as simple as, you know, somebody who's diabetic and is complaining of numbness and tingling, et cetera, you're thinking, okay, it could be a diabetic neuropathy, could be carpal tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the physical examination is key, and unfortunately, nowadays, I see more and more, uh, I mean, I cannot believe how patients at times tell me, nobody has done that to me, and it's just as simple as taking the shirt off and actually looking at the shoulder, touching it. I mean, it's not really anything too sophisticated. And they have been to three or four other doctors. They have been to an orthopath before. And I said, like, they didn't even do this? I'm going, wow, that's amazing. But it happens. And you see it happening every day, particularly because we have less and less time. Uh, we're looking for objective findings or as objective as we can make them. And the key here is going to be the clinical instead of an imaging diagnosis. In the physical examination, again, as a matter of review, all of these elements are very important. We're looking at inspecting the area, and when we're dealing with any musculoskeletal uh, complaint, we definitely want to check if the person has unilateral complaints. We definitely want to check the other side as well. We're looking for any kind of asymmetry, any kind of deformity. We do cursory, you know, pretty quick. It doesn't have to be to extend the range of motion, and it can be active. You ask the patient to actually abduct the shoulder, reflex it. It's really, it doesn't really take long. Now, if there are any deficits there, you may have to actually go into a little bit more in depth. If the patient cannot do it, you may have to do it passively to see if there's any kind of uh, fixed contracture, et cetera. But for the most part, this can be done pretty quickly. Uh, and then we look at the peripheral uh, essentially the peripheral uh, nervous system exam. We're looking at reflexes that are the most reliable uh, object, objective sign that we can look for. Then we have dermatomal sensation or lack thereof, weakness, and last but absolutely not least is tenderness. Tenderness in the area is very important, I, and, I, and I always tell, you know, when I'm doing uh, some of the workshops for the, for the medical students, I tell them, ask the patient where it hurts and touch that last. If you're going to start poking in the area that hurts, they're going to get very guarded, and you may not be able to get a good examination otherwise. But it's very important that even if it's the last thing, you do it. Because if you're examining a knee and it hurts in the anterior, anterolateral versus posterior, it can give you the diagnosis right there instead of actually not touching it and thinking that by imaging you're going to figure out what the patient has. So the diagnosis generally has to be supported by history and exam and make sense of, of known pathophysiology. Okay? The, these are two pain drawings that you may be familiar. These are things that are used, uh, that have been used for, for decades in, in pain management. And this, uh, this is an example of the one on the left. You see the pattern where the patient is asked to sort of uh, right, you know, where they have numbness, tingling, paresthesias, et cetera. And it's a pattern that's very sort of kind of textbook-like of a, an S1 radiculopathy. And I guess everybody would agree there, right? Now, the one on the right side is a little bit more concerning, okay? Well, somebody can argue that this could be, well, then maybe this patient has spinal stenosis, something like that. But, you know, pay attention to something very important. This individual has even written things about sensation outside of his or her body. This is yelling, you know, attention. This is calling for this psychological overlay. There's uh, symptom magnification. There's a lot of distress going on here. And things like this are things that are important to pay attention because you're dealing with something a little bit more complex. Let's just put it that way. 
So the ancillary tests that you see there all support the clinical diagnosis and they're not diagnostic themselves in practical terms, okay? That's not to say, and I don't want anyone to walk out of here saying Dr. Cueva says that we shouldn't do any x-rays. No, that's not what I'm saying. Is that you have to be careful how you interpret them. And you need to know when to order them. And you need to know that they, there's a, there, there are a lot of pitfalls that you could end up ordering something thinking that the patient has this condition and may not have anything to do with it. So these ancillary tests, uh, I, my, my, my message here is that particularly at the primary care level, they are rarely needed initially before you start managing the patient. Rarely, okay? But this, there are, like everything in medicine, there are exceptions, and these are some of the exceptions. When you have significant trauma, you should probably order plain films. And now that's significant, as I said before, is depending on the patient's characteristics. Uh, any of you here maybe just kind of slip and kind of fall on your buttocks from the chair, for a lot of you is not going to be any significant trauma, but somebody who is osteoporotic, it could lead to actually having two or three vertebral compression fractures, just a simple thing like that. In fact, a lot of these patients that have very severe osteoporosis, they cough or they sneeze and they fracture a couple vertebrae. So if you're 20 years old, that's not going to do anything to you for the most part, but then you have to keep that in mind. Any kind of progressive neurological deficits typically call for an MRI, and for the most part, call for an MRI immediately, emergently, and many times if it's kind of in the spine, you have to get a, a spine surgeon on board right away. Uh, again, this is stuff that's rarely seen. When you have suspected fracture dislocation plane films, when you have history of tumors or history of cancer, particularly these three that are notorious for uh, metastasizing to you know, the bones and the spine, et cetera, you really have to be a little bit more concerned. Even if you don't have any other reason to believe that there could be a problem when you have that history, you probably you want to err on the, on the safe side and order some plain films. And then when you have any kind of significant constitutional symptoms, when we're looking at either, you know, fever and things that are related to infection or things that could make you think that there could be a malignancy going on here. One quick word about electrodiagnostic studies. The electrodiagnostic studies, nerve conduction, EMG, traditional, conventional nerve conduction and EMG, the yield is nearly zero when you don't have any deficits, okay? So it, they're great to actually define the specific site. You can have somebody that you say, well, it has uh, all the typical features of an ulnar neuropathy, but is it at the wrist, is it at the elbow, where exactly, how severe it is? By all means, this will tell us with, you know, with, with a lot of precision. Same thing when you're suspecting carpal tunnel, et cetera, but there has to generally be some kind of deficit that you will be able to, to you know, type, like, like sort of look for, okay? Now, when you have somebody that, that, that complains, say, of hand numbness, uh, what do they usually tell you? They say, doctor, it's this, the thumb is numb, the index, the middle, and half of the ring finger. Have you ever heard that? I, I, I don't use, you know, I, I usually don't, don't hear that. They just say, my whole, my, my whole hand is actually numb. But then when you're examining them, you try to say, you know, does this feel the same as this? And they say, no, that's a little bit different. That's when you start trying to pinpoint it more, more objectively. Otherwise, most patients will tell you that the whole hand is numb. And they're not really trying to deceive you. It's just that they just feel that the whole hand is numb. Simple as that. Spine MRIs. Okay, big problem here. 
So one of the one of the most dangerous creatures is a patient with a report. Okay. It, I mean, it, it, this is this is something else. I mean, it's uh, it's happening more and more. Uh, a lot of healthcare systems are allowing or giving patients access to the medical record. Um, that's good in a lot of ways because it's, it makes for an educated patient. But if the patient is not properly educated about it, it's actually very dangerous and very problematic. I'm sure that you've had patients that have come to you and say, you know, here's the report. I said, you know, I don't even want to see it. You know, I, I don't care. I, I, I need to examine you. Oh, but, you know, nobody has actually done that before. Well, we're going to do it that way here. And, and to look at the report, in fact, one thing that I always tell also the medical students and the residents, I say, don't look at anything before. I mean, that just develop the, the clinical acumen of actually evaluating somebody and then think what the report is going to show and then look at the report. Okay, it's a good exercise anyway. But more so with that slide that I presented in the beginning, you know, the number of abnormalities that you're going to see in some of the scans that have absolutely nothing to do with the patient's complaint because they happen in asymptomatic people is actually horrendous. Okay? One thing that is, an, 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 quite frankly, is an abomination is, I don't know if you've seen um, the commercial on TV that says, call us for a free MRI review. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Uh, because, you know, that, that really doesn't give you anything. I mean, in fact, it will give you a lot of red herrings, a lot of problems that you, they have nothing to do with the patient's condition. You know, how many patients, you know, for those of you who were here on, on Tuesday that I spoke about SI joint pathology, a lot of these patients, they have a lot of these bulges and a lot of other things in the spine, and the problem is in the SI joint, and it could be in the knee that is radiated, et cetera. So, you know, this is a little bit of a problem. So bottom line is that the best thing to have would be the correlation of your physical exam and your history with some of the ancillary tests. That doesn't always happen. There are also patients that have true pathology and they have true complaints that do not have any significant abnormalities in their imaging studies. That happens too. But the problem, the biggest problem is when they have an abnormality and we're blaming it on that abnormality when it may have nothing to do with it. So again, the, this is the, you know, going back to the infamous this, the one thing that I want to, to emphasize here is that these are studies that were published three decades ago, okay? We're talking about 30 years ago, okay? It was published in 1990, but you know how it goes. Usually you have to do research. It takes a year, a couple of years to gather the data. So this is stuff from 30 years ago. MRI technology has actually come a long way since then, okay? So now, these were, you know, very high number of abnormal findings with the old technology. Just imagine what happens nowadays. We see more and more stuff that is, has nothing to do with what's going on. So these are excellent, you know, articles that were probably the initial articles that looked at this uh, by, by Bowden at, at Emory, not, you know, 30 years ago. And this is some of the data that I love to actually include in some of these lectures, unfortunately. Some of the CME, uh, uh, you know, reviewers, they say you need to include recent data. But this stuff is old, and it's there, and people don't know about it. This is when I was in medical school. This is, this is terrible. And, and we're still practicing the same, you know, way, which is, you know, unheard of. 
Let's just switch gears a little bit about what we're going to be doing in terms of the initial management at the primary care level. And this actually is a basic principle used in sports medicine that pretty much works for everything. Okay? This is the initial thing that you need to do, which is the, what we call the price principles, you know, pain reduction, relative rest. And you know, pain reduction can be with different modalities of, of you know, physical therapy, can be with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, uh, it can be with acetaminophen, um, et cetera. Uh, not, necessarily, not necessarily, even though it could be with, with opioids in, initially for just a short period of time. Uh, ice or cold, usually, because there's going to be inflammation if there's trauma, compression and elevation. This is all pretty simple that we should do with most of these patients. Now, let's just uh, start talking about some of the common problems here. Neck pain. So neck pain, you have to always be concerned about core compression, where we give you a myelopathy. There you would have a patient that would have some abnormalities in their deep tendon reflexes, uh, some of the you know, kind of long track signs, radiculopathy, joint problems such as facet joints, soft tissue including myofascial and dystonias, and even visceral that could be actually referred to the neck at times. Uh, case in point, like a heart attack with some angina that could go to the neck and the shoulder, etc. The key here is their neurological involvement. That's when you really have to be a little bit more concerned. If there isn't, then you can be a little bit more reassured that you can just manage this a little bit more conservatively. So the symptoms, uh, one of the most useful things when you're evaluating somebody that has neck problems or neck pain is have the patient do active range of motion. You do extension, you do flexion, rotation, lateral bending, all active. The patient can, you can just do it passively. And the location of that pain, because you know, the patient will say, you know, looking, that hurts. Okay, I say, well, exactly where does it hurt? Does it hurt in the front? Does it hurt in the back? Because that will give me a big clue of where the problem could be. When somebody's rotating the neck to the right, and they claim that the pain is on the left side, so on the contralateral side, posteriorly, and thinking more maybe myofascial muscle stretch. When it, they complain of pain on the same side, and thinking maybe more compression of the facet area, of the facet joints. This is not diagnostic per se, but it will give you a lot of clues. You need to palpate as well, and you will elicit some of the pain. So um, the neurologic signs are actually key here because the neck is, uh, you know, the cervical spine is in a very tight, narrow space, and very, at times, you know, not, it doesn't take a whole lot to actually compress the cord. So you have to be mindful of that. Uh, these are some of the tests, again, range of motion, very important. One test that is very useful is the Sperling's test, which is the maximal compression test to try to elicit a radicular signs. Patients complaining of pain in the right arm, radiating all the way to the middle finger. So we have them kind of uh, extend, rotate, and lateral bend, and put a little bit of actual pressure. And if it reproduces that type of, you know, exactly the same symptoms that the patient has, we can be fairly confident that the patient may be experiencing a radiculitis or radiculopathy. Um, these are the typical treatments, you know, usually you can, one, you know, just a word of a couple things here, uh, cervical collars, uh, be careful with those. They can be excellent for a few days, particularly somebody being on a car accident, et cetera, but as I will continue talking throughout the lecture, movement, moving, not rest, not full, complete bed rest is probably the best thing for these things. We can do a, we, it can be a, a great disservice to actually have them just bed rest, don't go to work, don't do anything for two weeks. That's just terrible, and you'll see why I'll explain later. Um, 
muscle relaxants. That's another one. That's another big one. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan. I mean, there's, a, there's a plenty of medical literature showing that their benefits, uh, as little as they may be, are probably there for, you know, probably you use them for a few days. Uh, it's, I think, terrible when people are on them for months and years, et cetera. They really don't, they have not been shown to be effective, and they can cause a whole host of other problems as well. Low back pain. Okay, most people will suffer that during their lifetime. One of the speakers yesterday was saying that sometimes the patient's expectations are a little bit too high. He was saying, you know, once you hit 40, everybody, when you, get, when you wake up in the morning, something hurts, okay? Something hurts, and the back is probably the one thing that will hurt the most. But that doesn't have to keep you from going about your normal activity and your daily routine, et cetera, et cetera. It usually gets better throughout the day and the like. As you can see, you, we have, we're going to have this degeneration from a very, very early age. And then it may become symptomatic at, at midlife. Uh, most of the times, it's self-limited. Okay? So it's very interesting that we talk about doing all these things, but many of these patients, you do nothing at all, and it gets better. It will get completely better on its own, again, most of the times. It may progress in some of them to the point that you have to do something. But there has to be, if you do a good physical examination with a good history, it doesn't seem to be any kind of red flags, the exam is normal at the time, only with some tenderness, et cetera, just reassurance goes a long way. If a patient, the patient may think that they have a terrible thing going on, that, they, that this could be, you know, and, and, and it's amazing what the patients tell you in terms of what they think is actually going on. Many times that education, telling them, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. We're going to give it a couple of weeks. If not, you know, we'll check you again, et cetera. That goes a long way. Uh, again, this is for more acute things. When you're dealing with more chronic things, then you're, like, things are getting a little bit more complicated. But, but still, that reassurance is important when you can tell them that there's nothing terrible going on. So... The one thing in, the, in, the, in low back pain, the same as the uh, in neck pain, you have to look for red flags. And the red flags here are going to be, of course, things like unbearable night pain, unintended weight loss, fever, chills, and progressive neurological deficits. Those are things that should prompt you to try to kind of work this up a little bit faster and more thoroughly because we could be dealing with infection, metastasis, et cetera. So again, the key again is, is there neurological involvement? As I said before, a uh, couple pitfalls here. Podoc and trochanteric pain are often related to back, so may, as the, the referral patterns of the facet joints, the SI joint, may actually include part of the back. And the, the referral pattern of, uh, of, of the back per se may actually refer to the trochanteric bursa area, et cetera. So you have to be mindful that some of these things may sort of coexist or may be a little bit, you know, there could be quite a bit of overlap. Uh, typically, when there's nerve involvement, like a radiculopathy, you're going to be seeing, for the most part, nerve, uh, nerve you know, pain that actually uh, extends beyond the knee or kind of distal to the knee. It's rarely going to be more proximal. And one very important caveat here is that serious and very concerning problems tend to be painless. One thing that I am very, very scared about is when somebody shows up with a painless foot drop. That's actually very scary, okay? Because that, it's either they have a motor radiculopathy, which are way less common than sensory or mixed radiculopathies, so they have no pain at all whatsoever, 
but many times it could be a paraneoplastic syndrome, it could be the beginnings of an upper motor neuron problem or like a, a, a motor uh, neuron disease such as ALS, et cetera. Somebody that shows up out of the blue with a wrist drop without any pain, it's actually very concerning, okay? So that's you know, a couple of things to keep in mind there. The management again, relative rest, I'm, I'm underlining it there because the relative rest is really relative. That doesn't mean stay in bed. That means, you know, if you're a construction worker, yeah, by all means don't go there, you know, to work for a couple of days, but you need to get up, you need to walk to the restroom, you have to get around the house and do your things because that's relative rest from the very forceful activities that you're doing, but not just staying in bed. And uh, a couple of things before I go into the rest thing is you avoid starting opioids in patients with chronic problems. I'm going to repeat this you want to do a more thorough evaluation, try to figure out what's going on before jumping into doing this. I have a little you know, anecdote here that I'll tell you that I always tell the primary care providers when I talk to them in the hospital. And I tell them, okay, this Joe Schmo shows up and tells you that he has, they has low back pain. You very diligently ask a few questions, say, since when have you had this low back pain? And this is a guy that's, say, 56 years old. And in my setting in the VA hospital, I said, well, since I was in Vietnam. Okay, this is, you know, typical. So this is, I mean, I was 22 years old, okay? So basically, we're talking about 30 years, you know, a 30-year-old pain here, okay? So the guy, you know, evaluates, that doesn't find anything, and said, well, I'm going to give you, a, uh, you know, say 30 Percocets to take for your low back pain. And then suddenly, boom, I stop and say, what did you accomplish by doing that? And the answer I usually get is nothing. And, and I say, no, wrong. You accomplished something very important. This is what you accomplished. 30 days later, you have guaranteed that this guy's going to be knocking on your door. And he's going to tell you, doctor, thanks for the Percocet, but it's, it's, it helps, but it's not quite enough. Can you double it up? And this is how things start. So this is the kind of thing that we need to try to avoid because they really lead to no, they, they, they lead nowhere, okay? So in a situation like that also, you know, if you don't have the need to order any test, don't order it because then you're going to have the patient coming with the test and say, you know, what's going on with this? Think about what the imaging studies say <clears throat> many times. Degenerative changes at the, X, you know, S1, uh, L5S1 with modic 1 changes. And somebody reads that and say, oh, my God, I'm going to die. You don't know. You don't know that. And and really, I mean, honestly, they say, "Wow, degenerative." That sounds pretty ominous. That sounds pretty bad. And in fact, you need to actually educate the patients. That's actually doctor talk. That's radiologists telling us, the other clinicians, what we need to know. But it can be, you know, those can be quite scary terms if you don't know what you're dealing with, and you can suddenly be legitimately concerned. And in the in the dark side of medicine, be very happy because now you have this and now it's going to be some, you know, work must come, but disability, et cetera, you know, we're not even going to go into that. All right. So the herniated disc don't mean anything without concordant symptoms and signs. Okay. Now, this is a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, very reputable journal. Again, 1986, more than 30 years ago. Okay. I'm just bringing out, you know, I'm dusting all those uh, LPs from, from a long time ago. But this is something that was actually done in San Antonio. Richard Deo, 
did this study in a walking clinic, and they actually randomized patients to go with acute back pain to bed rest and no bed rest. In fact, it was actually bed rest for two days, and the others were bed rest for seven days. And not only did the, did the ones that were in bed rest for seven days fare much worse, but they actually ended up having some deleterious consequences down the line. So all of these are good things that happen. Actually, this one, increased activity. All of these things, we know they happen in the body with increased activity. And all of these other are bad things that happen in the body. You have somebody resting. And this gets worse as a person ages more. In rehab, we typically say for one day of bed rest, it'll take you at least two days to recover. It's usually twice. So you have somebody that's been in the ICU for 60 days, don't really expect anything for a solid four months for, for that patient to actually get back to, to where they were initially. So, you know, bed rest can be actually quite harmful. Arthritis. Uh, jump into arthritis here. The most common is osteoarthritis, of course. But we have, of course, post-traumatic arthritis, a combination of the above and autoimmune diseases as well. So uh, something that we're going to be seeing very, very, very commonly in practice. This is maybe a little bit too early in the morning to see this. But uh, this is a picture of a patient that's going to undergo a total knee replacement. You see some of the severe changes, you know, in the in the distal femur here, in the patella here, et cetera. And this is the kind of stuff that will, that, that will at times, when it has progressed it's severe enough, you need to actually undergo one of the surgical procedures. But again, this is usually like last option for some of these patients after you try many, many other things. Whenever we're evaluating arthritis uh, or arthritis, we have to bear in mind that particularly for osteoarthritis, the genetic influences are, are huge, so the past medical history and the family history is very important. You need to ask the patient, so what, you know, did your mom or your dad had this or any of the siblings? And many times they'll tell you, yeah, my mom was pretty crippled when she was 65, she was in a wheelchair, she couldn't walk, etc. So that, that's a very, very important component to try to elicit to get an idea of what's going on here. We know that it happens more in females than males. Uh, the weight, the mechanical weight on the joints, the weight-bearing joints, the hip, the knee, as you see there, is several times your body weight as you walk normally. So there, this, these joints are actually taking some, you know, a very large amount of weight, and that is particularly important in people that are obese. And every little, every little pound counts. If somebody tells me, you know, oh, but I, it's so difficult, I had to lose 100 pounds. I say, yeah, but I mean, and if you lose five or 10, it's gonna make a big difference because you multiply that times 2.5 or times four, and that's a lot of pounds that you're putting of less torque into those joints. So try to stimulate people to start little by little. Same thing as when they're working out, you know, when they, you just tell them you need to try to walk every day, you know, do a little bit of walking. And they say, oh, well, that's, that's so difficult, uh, whatever. And I said, you know, just how hard can it be to do five minutes? How hard can it be to do eight minutes? And then little by little, you'll see you start feeling better. That's a heck of a lot more than what you're doing right now anyway, which is nothing. So try starting with that, and then little by little, every week perhaps, increase it by one minute or a couple minutes. And before you know it, you're going to be doing 45 minutes. And that's, that's, that's a big deal. Okay? Uh, now, in addition to the weight on somebody who's obese, there's more and more and more emerging literature on the fact that osteoarthritis 
unbeknownst to us years ago, it, it has an inflammatory component. And that inflammatory component, the fat storage, fat tissues, release some inflammatory mediators, inflammatory cytokines, adipocytokines, leptin particularly, that are very inflammatory and very problematic in terms of joint degeneration. So visceral adipose tissue cells in your belly area can be actually quite harmful. In addition to the weight, they can be actually quite harmful metabolically as well. So this is what we would see, you know, the x-ray, you know, joint space narrowing, sclerosis, osteophytes, et cetera. And, and here's a picture of, I want to show you that the, the importance of actually doing bilateral uh, films. This patient was complaining of left hip pain. You can see that left hip, it's actually looks pretty bad. I mean, there's a lot of sclerosis, virtually no joint space there, uh, cysts, et cetera. But look at the other side. It looks pretty normal. It looks pretty good. So... This is a patient that typically is the picture that you will see in somebody that has post-traumatic arthritis because these things tend to be fairly symmetric. And when you see something like this, we're talking about somebody that had significant trauma many years ago and then now has developed these significant changes. So management here, some of the modalities that we use for managing osteoarthritis. I want to emphasize a couple of them. Glucosamine and chondroitin. Okay. Um, there are good, solid, um, very you know, large, actually, studies, particularly in Europe, that have shown that the combination of these two, and, and particularly glucosamine, can be actually, they being actually head-to-head comparisons to specifically celecoxib, okay? And it can be just as good or even superior in some studies for osteoarthritis. So don't don't kind of uh, dismiss them. They could be actually quite useful, That's specifically for the knee. For other joints, we don't have any reason to think why they wouldn't work either, but that has been the literature there. So, you know, weight management, physical therapy is going to be key there, particularly getting the patient started at times, getting the patient to learn how to do the proper exercises, but then I want to emphasize that in the beginning stages of any kind of acute problem, we're looking at some of the passive modalities, you know, heat, cold, uh, you know, ultrasound, et cetera. But then the, these conditions call for the patient to be an active participant, engage in the exercise, him or herself. However, the patient needs to learn how to properly do them, okay? But this is not that the patient's gonna be, oh, they only pay for 10 physical therapy sessions. Now, heck, I mean, in my center, we just do it in two. I mean, we don't need 10. You just need to actually learn how to do it, and then you have to do them. Okay, many times the therapist will bring the patient back three or four weeks later to verify that they're doing them, to actually see how, demonstrate how they're doing them. In fact, we're doing a lot of that through telemedicine now, that we have the patient at home and say, okay, so let's go through the routine and see, and they're watching them and making sure that they're actually doing them. And if they're having any, if not doing them properly, they can actually just instruct them how to correct it but the patient has to actually do this him or herself. Then, of course, there's a lot of other things like bracing, different orthotics, assisted devices when necessary, crutches, canes, the like. And, you know, last but not least, the intraarticular injections, corticosteroids, hyaluronic acid, other regenerative therapies like proliferant therapy, talking about PRP, stem cells, very little evidence in terms of them helping or working at this point, but they're done, expensive, usually not covered by insurance. And then, last but not least, surgical. 
Switching now to the upper limb, go to the shoulder pain. Um, these are some of the causes that we will see in somebody that may present with shoulder pain. The causes are actually quite, uh, it's a quite extensive a list, and there's a very simplified list. Um, usually the mechanism is gonna be minor trauma, even though there could be much more severe trauma, of course, that may call for imaging for x-rays and the like. But as you saw in that initial slide that I showed in the beginning, up, upwards of 90% of the people that are asymptomatic will have abnormalities in shoulder imaging, okay? So just by doing that and say, aha, this is the problem here. Again, as I said before, this may not really give you the answer and it may not have anything to do with it. The shoulder is particularly important to examine and try to elicit where the pain is. You know, the differential diagnosis, same as with the knee, of anterior knee pain is completely different than lateral or medial or the same thing with the shoulder. What's going on anteriorly versus the pain is more lateral, the pain posterior, etc. We always have to keep in mind whenever we're doing these evaluations that one, probably a, a, a good uh, practice is that when the patient complains of a specific region, say the shoulder, get into the habit of evaluating a segment more proximal and a segment more distal to that. Many times, and actually not many times, it doesn't really happen that often, I shouldn't say that, uh, but you can have actually somebody that has shoulder pain, and we see this actually quite often, that, that, that's one thing, that they send the patient because the patient has shoulder pain and and clearly the pathology is actually coming from the neck and it's actually referred pain and vice versa, it happens too. Same thing with the elbow, just you know, evaluate the shoulder, evaluate the wrist and, and so on and so forth, so it's a good practice always. Again, the symptoms are easily elicitable here for the most part by having the patient do range of motion and many times the patient will complain on specific uh, movements and that will give you a big clue of what the diagnosis is. But again, you know, I am continue to de-emphasize the use of imaging studies. You can actually do a lot of this by palpation, and if it's tender in certain areas, you know, when somebody's 50 years old, it hurts in the end of abduction, and it's tender over the AC joint area, and they have had no trauma, you know, they probably have AC joint osteoarthritis, and that's probably it. It's been going on little by little. So there's no real need to actually do uh, many times an imaging study here. They will tell you about sometimes, you know, problems with their dressing and the like that will prompt you to think that there's something going on there. Always observe both shoulders. Same thing with every other joint because you'll be surprised at times that you, you know, you don't check. You suddenly see, wow, there's something kind of odd here that doesn't look right. Uh, even if you're not really that familiar with the anatomy, you're going to see that there's plenty of asymmetry and there should not be for the most part. It should be fairly symmetric. So that should call for maybe doing a little bit more thorough, more in-depth investigation, maybe do some ancillary testing, et cetera. These are some of the tests, again, and some of the physical you know, modalities and some of the uh, usual modalities for acute pain. And also just be aware of some of these referral patterns, particularly you know, visceral. Again, these are rare things, but it could happen. And certainly from the neck, it's actually quite common. <clears throat> All right, jumping to hip pain now. These are some of the causes of hip pain. Um, see an x-ray there that has a couple of those things that were uh, mentioned in, the, in that original abnormal imaging study uh, picture. 
you have you know the cam deformity, you have the pincer deformity here, uh, you have you know uh, sclerosis, you have you know uh, narrowing of the of the superior border of the joint. So this is actually very typical osteoarthritic hip. One key thing here, let me see if I. The key thing in in a hip when somebody complains of hip pain is the location of that pain. Okay. That's a very, very, very important thing for you to remember, okay? When first question that I ask somebody says, doctor, my right hip hurts, and I say, tell me where the pain is, point exactly, and they go, here. And I go, okay, that's not your hip, great. Let's move on. Now, <clears throat> hip pain typically hurts, you know, coxofemoral joint pain per se hurts in the outer groin the outer groin out here, okay? Why is that? Is that some kind of weird referral, embryological referral pattern of some kind? No, that's where the hip is, okay? The, what's out here, it's actually the greater trochanter, tensor fasciolata, iliotibial band, etc. But the hip is more here. When these are, it's very, very interesting when the, you know, residents, uh, medical students, they see when we do some of the fluoroscopically guided procedures or ultrasound procedures that we say we're going to inject the hip and we start looking in this area and say, what are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for the hip. That's where the hip is. Okay, it's not out here. Okay? So ask where the problem is because then you, you, you have something, the outer groin, you may be having actually referred pain from the, from the knee, but for the most part it's hip. One other area that you have to always keep in mind is that SI joint, rarely, but for the, because for the most part, it's more like the buttock and sort of like greater trochanter area, lateral thigh, but it can refer pain similar to some of the fossa joints to the groin area. It's not as common, but it can happen. Okay? All right. So uh, a couple of other things to do here. The same thing, as I said before, you know, glucosamine and chondroitin, weight loss is key here. You know, a lot of weight is taken through that knee. A lot of torque goes on there. Um, look for history of any of these things. Somebody that has had systemic steroid use, you have to think right away of avascular necrosis, okay? And that steroids both prescribed as, you know, medically necessary, such as, folks that have had rheumatological conditions, COPD and the like, uh, but also steroids that are taken without a prescription, of course. Um, it's not uncommon to see, there's a couple of famous uh, athletes that have had this and always wonder, you know, what happened. Of course, it can happen with trauma. There could be significant trauma that could be decrease of blood flow to the head of the femur but, and it can lead to this, but it's actually quite common with chronic steroid use. Um, one other thing important here is that when you, like the, the, the occurrence of adult septic arthritis is extremely rare. It's a lot more common in children, but in, in adults we're rarely thinking of this. But of course you have to think of other things like cancer and the like. All right, let's talk about knee pain now. Knee pain, um, a lot of pathology that you can see in the knee there. Um, many times, you know, the, the one key when you're asking people about knee pain is the, the acuity of it, how come, how fast it came about. And be 
careful about that. Tell you a little story. Um, one of the speakers yesterday was talking about how important it is to gather information from people around the patient. Okay? I cannot even tell you how many times we've had somebody referred for any kind of complaint, but uh, let's just talk about knee pain now. And they put a referral. We usually see the patient within seven to ten days, you know, for routine things. The patient shows up, and, I, and, and the referral says the patient had, has had pain for the last three months and, and is being referred to you, okay? So we see the patient, and I figure the patient's probably had pain for about three months, right? And I ask the patient, so when did this start? And I kid you not, they say, oh, about a week ago. Yeah, about a week ago, they had not even put the consult. What are you talking about? Okay? It's not even possible. I mean, wh how come, like, your, your primary care provider has, like, x-ray vision and can see in the future or whatever, has, like, a, like a crystal ball? And, and then the wife is there, and the wife said, no, come on, you had this for the last three years. You've been, you know, it's been bothering you for a long time. So, you know, it's important to actually gather that information because what the patient, and, you know, you know, generally speaking, most humans are actually pretty bad about keeping track of things that happened a long, you know, like a long time ago. They remember their recall is going to be, particularly for pain, is going to be probably for the last couple of weeks. That's some of the problems with, like, kind of keeping pain diaries and the like. If they don't do it the same day and you're asking how you were doing a month ago, they will just kind of be all over the place, and it's inaccurate. So whenever you can, just try to get other people to actually give you additional information because the initial management of somebody that has had or the initial assessment of somebody that has had pain for three years is going to be you're thinking of completely different things of somebody that had pain that started a couple of weeks ago abruptly. So we're looking at location is a very important diagnostic clue. You know, you always ask the patient point to where the pain is, and it's a little bit another story. When I ask the patient, where does it hurt in your back? They say, I have low back pain. Where does it hurt? What am I expecting? It hurts here, it hurts there. And they come and they say, between L4 and L5. <laughs> okay, give me the report. Let me see it. Okay? So... That, that's the kind of stuff that we need to try to, to tease out because the many times some of the, I mean, now think about it in healthcare, uh, a lot of organizations, they have really frowned upon the use of patients. Now it's customer. And that, that, that's, you know, it's got some validity, but it could be a little bit of a problem because the customer is coming with that and he wants you to do something or whatever. But, I mean, you need to... The, it's not like you're going to say, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. Uh, you're going to get, you know, uh, angry at the individual, et cetera. What you need to do is just that's an opportunity for, for education. And you have to tell them, you know, there are a lot of times that you see things there that are not necessarily what the problem is, and that's why we need to examine you and we need to do the X, Y, and Z, et cetera. And, and it may kind of sound a little bit foreign to them in the beginning, but eventually you will gain their trust and you'll be able to actually help them. So location is very important. You're looking at the patient uh, from the moment that they get up from the you know, chair in the waiting room, if you can, or get the patient sitting on the stretcher or exam table and getting up from the chair. And that will give you a lot of clues about what kind of problems this patient is having, particularly in the lower limbs. 
You're checking also for loss of motion or stiffness, crepitus, bony tenderness, enlargement, and then you're looking at deformities when the patient is actually standing, like the bow-legged or, or knock-knee. Typically, this is going to be seen more in males. This is going to be seen more in females. This is going to lead to more medial knee problems. This is going to lead to more lateral knee problems for obvious you know, vector or physical reasons. Uh, but it's important to observe all that. So these are some of the things that you're looking in the examination, and it's important to try to elicit tenderness. And in general, when there is significant pathology, you're going to have some tenderness. There are some special tests, many special tests that can be done, usually at the more like on a specialist level. But more and more, I'm actually getting a little bit surprised that medical students that I have for this physical exam workshops, they're asking them to finally to actually learn some of these things as medical students, which is excellent, because some of these simple things can actually help you be able to you know, figure out what the patient has and, and help the patient. So whenever possible, evaluate both sides and note any differences. Okay? These are some of the tests that you can do. Big, you know, glucosamine and chondroitin, that's important to actually consider. All of these other things, as we said before, and it could be referred pain from the hip and vice versa, so keep that in mind. Okay, one very important thing about uh, surgeries for the hip. These are a couple articles, one 2002, the other one 2008, 2017, that they've showed the sort of like futility of some of these procedures at times. In fact, uh, who says really that when you have a meniscal tear you have to do surgery for that? It's not, it's not always that you have to do surgery. When it's actually causing a lot of locking, a lot of, a lot of activity problems, maybe you know, locking of the knee that you're actually falling and the like, maybe an athlete, maybe somebody that's doing very vigorous activity, it may be necessary. And of course, the least invasive, the better. We know now that doing partial meniscectomies, preserving the rest of the meniscus is the best thing. In the, U, in the distant past, they would do total meniscectomies and these patients end up with horrendous arthritis down the line. So these structures are there for a reason, and many patients can be rehabilitated and don't need surgery for this. So just keep that in mind. That should not be a reflex of going to send to orthopod. In fact, the patient may actually have a meniscal tear and had nothing to do with the pathology or the symptoms that they're having. It may be actually an incidental finding. So, you know, keep that in mind. Just Common nerve entrapments to wrap up because we're almost out of time here. Carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel syndrome, peroneal neuropathy of the fibular head, etc. You need to try to define the territory. It's always very helpful when you try to actually look and see if there's any kind of neurological deficits from this. Sometimes you may not find anything, and that's where electrodiagnostic tests are going to be diagnostic, both in terms of actual, you know, defining the pathology and also the severity of it. Case in point, carpal tunnel syndrome. This is what you're typically gonna have, but again, as I said before, usually they will say the whole hand gets numb, particularly worse at night. Uh, when I'm driving, if I kind of shake my hands, we call this a positive shake sign, it gets better, okay? You get maybe a little bit of blood flow to the area. They may start dropping things, etc. And one very important thing about this uh, condition that I, I don't believe that this, I have never seen anything published along these lines, but it's something that we see day in and day out all the time. It's like when we do these studies, 
generally, the milder it is in terms of electrodiagnostic you know, the nerve conduction findings, the worse are the symptoms, which is very interesting. Um, patients that have very, it's like what the old concept of, remember in medical school with a great rheumatologist that would always tell us about this burnout RA that wasn't hurting anymore because it was so bad that there was nothing there to hurt anymore. And it could be that in a situation like this, the nerve has been affected or damaged so badly that it doesn't really give you a whole lot of symptoms. Now you have a patient that gets referred because they have a very serious thinner atrophy you know, in one hand, obvious that the patient has that problem but doesn't really have a lot of symptoms otherwise. So the milder at times, it could be actually pretty, uh, pretty symptomatic. Um, how to manage it there, usually, uh, you know, you can try to explain, make sure that it's in neutral. Any extension, any flexion of that is actually putting excess, excess pressure on the nerve. You could be actually doing more harm than good. Don't put it too tight because that can actually impair a little bit of the venous circulation and it could actually cause more swelling in the area. Uh, some of these other things, and particularly one thing that we've been doing lately has been you know, injecting it onto, under ultrasound and it can be actually quite effective. Just, and you see the nerve here, we come from the ulnar side. This is the needle, we're right under the nerve injected and it actually is good for symptom relief. So to wrap up now, <clears throat> avoid studying opiates, opi uh, opiates or opioids in patients with chronic problems. Your duty is to try to figure out, try your best to figure out what kind of pathology or what's going on here before studying any treatment like this that should probably be your last option. Avoid ordering some of these imaging studies when the clinical findings do not warrant it. Unfortunately, sometimes you have no saying in the matter. The patient already comes with the study, but you know, then you have to educate. And as we should have learned during our training, you never order anything that is not going to change your management. Okay? So if your management, initial management is going to be some physical therapy here, or it's going to be some anti-inflammatory, whatever, you don't really need to order any tests to really start that treatment. You can actually, in fact, many times, what's gonna happen is that, that that imaging study may actually make you doubt of what you thought originally and may introduce other source of error for you there. Uh, so this is what we pretty much discussed today and because we're out of time, I wanna thank you all for being here.